Do you know that certain peptides can benefit those with Graves' disease and Hashimoto's? If you want to learn more about how peptides can help with thyroid autoimmunity and other chronic conditions, then you'll want to check out the brand new Peptide Summit hosted by Dr. Jenny Flagar. In fact, peptides play a huge role in helping Dr. Jenny overcome her Hashimoto's condition. To register for the free Peptide Summit, visit SaveMyThyroid.com forward slash peptides. Thank you for joining me on the Save My Thyroid podcast, where I help people save their thyroid and regain their health. My name is Dr. Eric Osansky, and if you have hyperthyroidism, then you will especially benefit from these episodes. If you have hypothyroidism or Hashimoto's thyroiditis, you will also find many of the episodes to be valuable, including this one, where I interview FDN practitioner Tracy Farrell about testing for the triggers of thyroid and autoimmune thyroid conditions. This is the perfect follow-up episode to the one I just had with Reed Davis, as while Reed is the founder of the FDN practitioner program, I already mentioned that Tracy is a practicing FDN practitioner. She actually worked for me. Tracy has been part of the Natural Endocrine Solutions team for three years, and like me, she is very passionate about helping people save their thyroid and regain their health. I need to let you know that while we cover a lot of different tests, this doesn't mean that you need to do all the tests we discuss. So for example, when I dealt with Graves' disease, I had adrenal saliva testing, I had hair mineral analysis, and I had blood testing, and that's all the testing I got at the time. But with my patients, it depends. Some people need more comprehensive testing, so I might recommend a comprehensive stool panel, and I do recommend a comprehensive stool panel on some people, others organic acids testing, some I'll recommend dried urine testing or Dutch testing instead of saliva testing, and we'll be covering these tests. And ultimately, it's up to the patient that I'm working with. So if I'm recommending comprehensive testing, for example, and if they are on a budget and they just could afford one or two tests, then of course, that's perfectly fine. And vice versa, if I'm recommending conservative testing and they want to do more comprehensive testing, that's okay as well. As usual, make sure you listen to the post-episode chat after the outro music as I'll expand on the concerns with false negative and false positive test results, as well as SIBO and mold testing, as well as colonoscopies. Anyway, here is my interview with Tracy. Welcome to the Save My Thyroid podcast, hosted by Dr. Eric Osansky. To stay up to date on the latest thyroid health-related topics, visit SaveMyThyroid.com. The following discussion is for educational purposes only and is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease. Please do not apply any of this information without first speaking with your doctor. Now let's head to the show. All right. So I am very excited to interview today's guest who happens to be one of my staff. Her name is Tracy Farrell, and we are going to be chatting about testing, testing for triggers And so let me go ahead and dive into Tracy's bio. She has more than 20 years of experience in healthcare, starting on the administration side, working as director of children's hospitals with the think tank on women's and children's health, and then as a functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner and integrative health and nutrition coach at Natural Endocrine Solutions. And she did her undergraduate at St. John's University and also received a postgraduate research certificate from Adelphi University. And thank you so much for joining us, Tracy. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to this. Yeah, no, very excited to chat with you. And yeah, Tracy does an amazing job going over tests and, you know, also she's done health coaching, but we're going to focus here on the testing side. So why don't we start off by, if you could just talk a little bit about your background, why did you decide to become a health coach and then go on and become a FTN practitioner? Okay. So I think like many people who do what we do is it's usually a health event for ourselves or our family. For me, it was probably started really young. A lot of my parents' friends were activists and health focused people. And then my oldest had a diagnosis of, we didn't know. They wanted to give him medication and they wanted to do things. And I'm like, okay, I'm happy to do what we need to do, but why not find out what's wrong with him? It turned out he had a little bit of ADHD and a little bit of dyslexia, not necessarily an appropriate use of pharmaceuticals, in my opinion, for a kid under 10. And I started at that point focusing on what can I do 
in a natural, healthy way to support him and to support our family. And that started me on my journey this way. And then years later, I guess I finally pulled the trigger of going back and getting my degrees and certificates in functional health and everything. And since then, it's made a huge difference in my family's health from my my oldest to my parents to myself. That's how I got in it. All right. Wonderful. Well, thanks for sharing that. And as far as testing, so we'll, of course, talk about the different tests we do. And I know there's overlap when it comes to the ones that you learn about, but can you talk about what they taught you, like as far as like what tests they covered during your FDN training? Yeah, absolutely. It's a little bit different today. They've updated their tests as I know you did an interview with Reed, so he'll probably update those tests for you. But on myself, since I did it a little while ago, I did a comprehensive stool panel was adrenal saliva test, which is the adrenal stress test, it's hair and mineral analysis, organic acids, and the MRI testing, which is a food sensitivity test. MRT, I think you said MRI. MRT, MRT. I'm sorry, MRT, excuse me, and MRI is totally different. <laughs> Postgraduate, I've since added the dried urine test, which is the Dutch test, functional blood chemistry analysis certificate. I did an advanced gut health course, a SIBO certificate and update just this year neurotransmitter testing and remediation and a zoomer for both the gluten, the wheat zoomer and a histamine. So I like to be as updated as possible. And then I took a DNA course on sensitivities and other testing. I'm just in the middle of that right now. I clearly like school. (laughs) Well, and so what are some of your favorite tests? If you had to pick whatever, two, three, four tests, what do you really enjoy looking at? As you know, I love the gut health. That's one of my favorite things. And interestingly enough, I didn't start off as being a big testing person. I thought to myself, well, you know, as long as we change food and stuff. But the more that I dig in and the more that I do FDN, I have to say the gut health is I love. I probably do it way too much on a personal level, but I love to see it in patients just because I find the field of microbiome and how it affects people and how it has so many different gut brain, gut thyroid, you know, has so many different effects. I've recently sort of fallen in love a little bit with the Dutch test, probably because I'm slightly middle-aged and I like to check my hormones and I like to see everything and I get to see how valuable it is for our patients. You know, organic acids is nice. I have to admit, I used to roll my eyes at the food sensitivity testing because I felt that like our immune patients and all their health, they're so sensitive to everything that everything shows up. But the MRT testing, I'm sort of starting to really enjoy and see how it works and seeing a value for our patients in that more just from this is where you're at now standpoint. So that new test is starting to become something that I'm looking at a little bit more our patients. So what I like to do is just go down the list of some of the different tests that we do in our practice. And just if you could talk about some of the things you're looking for, I definitely could jump in as well. We could kind of go back and forth. I'm sure there are some listening to this who are familiar with these tests, but then there are others who have no idea what's included, which I look for when doing an adrenal saliva test or a Dutch test or hair mineral analysis or comprehensive stool panel. So if you're okay with it, why don't we start with adrenal saliva test? So what are some of the things that you look for when we do an adrenal saliva test? Okay. So I'll tell you a little bit like a quick thing about what is an adrenal saliva test. It's done during the course of a day. It's a saliva test, as the name suggests. It's looking at your adrenals and it's We call it an adrenal stress index, I think is the one that we use. And it measures the circadian rhythm of your cortisol levels. This test has like, you know, you begin in the morning when you wake up and you go all the way through the evening. A challenge for me when doing this test was not having coffee. I will admit that and possibly an avocado. So make sure you read the directions and no exercising. So those are a few things just to be aware of when you get it. I'm looking at this is I particularly like this for the circadian rhythm of your cortisol levels. Frequently, as our thyroid patients are, as probably 
all of them who've spoken to me can tell you, I'm always talking about the HPA axis and how things are tied together, sort of like teenage lemmings going, following each other and how our hormones are interconnected. What I like about it is that you have measuring of this so that we can see a snapshot of the stress in your life and how it's affecting you. And it's looking at everything throughout the day versus like a blood test, which is just a snapshot of that moment in time and can be affected by what's known as medical office stress. So I particularly like the adrenal saliva test for that. It's a nice snapshot into it. You know, you could have food infections, what your possible triggers are, you know, where you are, why you're having trouble sleeping. So I like that. Yeah, I agree. I agree. As Tracy mentioned, so there's different companies out there and the company we use not only looks at the circadian rhythm of cortisol. So cortisol should be at the highest in the morning and it should gradually decrease throughout the day. So that's what ideally we're looking for. Oh, a ski slump. <laughs> exactly. And then it also looks at DHEA, looks at 17-hydroxyprogesterone, looks at secretory IgA. It lines the mucosal surfaces of the body, including the gastrointestinal tract, as well as like respiratory system and other areas, but it's a form of protection. And you know, it has a few other markers, looks at insulin, gliadin. I don't do that test for that purpose. Really, it's the circadian rhythm of cortisol, DHEA. I do like that it includes a circadian rhythm. And yeah, when I dealt with Graves disease, my cortisol was flatline. At least the first two morning cortisol. Really, you want those to be the highest, especially that first one, the second and third. The third and fourth one should be on the lower side. But my first one and the second one was definitely low. And then some people have the opposite, where their cortisol is high and we're trying to do things to calm down the adrenals. And Tracy mentioned HPA axis, which is the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. So hypothalamus communicates with the pituitary that communicates that adrenal adrenals and that tends to get dysregulated. So we're doing things like stress management, mind-body medicine, adaptogenic herbs to help support that HPA axis. But yeah, I agree. I've been doing this test for, I've been in remission since 2009. So since then, I've been recommending it to patients. Now, in some cases, We'll recommend Dutch testing, which is the next test I want to discuss because Dutch test also looks at adrenals, but it looks at a lot of other things as well. So what are you looking at, Tracy, when we do a Dutch test? Excellent. Um, a little bit about the Dutch test. It's dried urine testing is a Dutch test. I feel like I say this about all the tests. Oh, it's easy to do with all of our tests. And in a lot of ways, all of our tests are easy in the sense that you are doing them at home. So it's easy to do on the road. I did my own Dutch test between travels recently. So it's another take anywhere test. You don't have to go somewhere special. You just order it and it comes, which is nice. So this test utilizes urine to analyze your sex and adrenal hormones and their metabolites. And, you know, you're going to get little strips with it and you're going to pee on them several times a day. And, you know, for some people, this test is easier than the adrenal stress index, the saliva one, because some people can't produce enough saliva. As I like to say in my house, the saliva one was a little bit difficult for my husband. I guess I'm a little bit more saliva than he is. And I found that one easier versus the Dutch test. I found a, a little bit harder for me because I hydrate a lot. So one of the things, as I mentioned with the ASI, you'll have to be aware of is they like to have you a little restricted on your water. I think it's 44 ounces a day that you'll be limited to. So for somebody who's hydrating properly, that's a little bit annoying, but that's the worst that I have to say about it. So it's a good thing to be aware of and it was easy to use. And I really enjoyed getting it back. You know, it's because I put it right under his nose right when I got it. Some of the reasons why I like the ASI test and you'll also like the adrenal stress, you're going to avoid caffeine, another Hard thing and exercise and a couple of foods you're going to want to look at that list so it's just a good thing to know you're gonna i like what this test looks at it looks at your sex hormones estrogen testosterone androgens and their metabolites your adrenal hormones oxidative stress biomarker and your organic acids which is on an expanded test of this and it can also look at 
depending on which ones you order, you could add the cortisol morning with a spit. So yeah, that's a little bit about the test. I have to say, as like a middle-aged woman, I kind of love the test for myself personally to get a snapshot. And for our patients, I love it for the metabolites. What I mean by metabolites is the usable hormones that are secreted in your urine. If I got that correct, Eric will correct me on that if I didn't. And this is the only test that does that. And as I mentioned earlier, our HPA access is tied to it. And in our Graves patients, we frequently see, especially in women, hormone dysregulation. Men too, but women were just really grander in our hormones. (laughs) We're more shouty. And I love the fact that this gives us that metabolite and what we can see in them. It forces us like to see them and it lets us, they're important for helping us diagnose certain conditions. You know, a good example of what kind of conditions they can help us for women, the estrogen and the phase one and phase two with the progesterone can show us, you know, fertility issues, confirm autoimmune issues having some PMS, I could see where that's at. On the male side, you know, we can do some androgen metabolites, you know, got that male pattern baldness. You might want to see what's going on there with that. Some prostate issues, some both sides, acne issues where we could check in in that. And it helps tie it in to, you know, how we approach a treatment and how we do it. Like when I was a health coach, I like to look this over and see, you know, I didn't have as much knowledge of like, you know, diet and lifestyle. What am I going to do for that? Here, it might be making suggestions on estrogen regulation. And some of our patients are younger and they're looking to have children and how we can maybe get that together and help them achieve their goals. So I really like that about it, the test. Yeah, I agree. I like the Dutch test a lot. As Tracy mentioned, it also looks at the circadian rhythm of cortisol, just like the adrenal stress index test does, the ASI. And again, when it comes to triggers, because I didn't mention with the saliva test, specifically triggers, I mean, stress is a potential trigger. So when stress, without question, affects the adrenals, and you need to have healthy adrenals to have healthy sex hormones. So arguably, not everybody needs to test the sex hormones, which is why I don't recommend Dutch testing to every single person. I mean, it's not going to hurt for everyone to get it, but it is more expensive than the saliva testing. And if we're just focusing on adrenals, I think saliva testing is sufficient. But if you do want to look deeper into the sex hormones, I mean, of course, you could also do blood testing for sex hormones. But as Tracy mentioned, a big advantage of Dutch testing is that it looks at the metabolites of the hormones, which you can't look at through the blood, you can't look at through the saliva. So the different metabolites, there's cortisol metabolites, androgen metabolites, but the main ones I focus on, not to say I don't look at the other ones, but I think the most important are the estrogen metabolites. There there are three estrogen metabolites it looks at. And, you know, when talk about estrogen dominance, I mean, estrogen dominance, you could have high estrogen levels or you could have normal estrogen levels and low progesterone. But again, the blood testing, you could do saliva testing for sex hormones as well. But again, you can't look at the metabolism of the hormones. And I've seen people with lower estrogen levels, yet they have higher 4-hydroxy or higher 16-hydroxy metabolites, which are the so-called bad metabolites. And nothing's really good and bad. You want everything to be within a healthy range. And again, this could be estrogen dominance or problems with estrogen metabolism could be a potential trigger or at least a contributing factor. Also, if someone has thyroid nodules or uterine fibroids or ovarian cysts, that could also be a factor. And so again, I don't think everybody necessarily needs to do this test, but for those willing to do it, it is very valuable. Like if someone has a history of fibroids or, I mean, a lot of people have thyroid nodules. I can't say have everybody do the Dutch test who have thyroid nodules, but if they have a lot of different conditions related to problems with estrogen metabolism. So if they have not only nodules, but also again, the fibroids, ovarian cysts, endometriosis, then that might be an indication to do the Dutch test. Or as Tracy mentioned, if they're having like fertility problems, that's another 
good reason to do the Dutch test. If there's a family history of estrogen-dependent cancers or a personal history yeah. of estrogen-dependent cancers like breast cancer or certain breast cancers, then again, it's probably is a good idea to consider doing the Dutch test. And she also mentioned as a section where it looks at organic acids. More on the basic side, we're going to talk about more comprehensive organic acids test. But still, it is kind of cool that it looks at some of the organic acids related to glutathione and related to some of the B vitamins, B12 and B6 and some oxidative stress markers. So yeah, I mean, you do get a lot of information with the Dutch test. Melatonin also tests for melatonin as well. So yeah, I can't say enough good things about the Dutch test. I also like the oxidative stress marker, which I didn't appreciate as much until more recently from the, I guess, coming from more of the nutrition end of it, I like to look at what it's 8-O-H-D-G is the marker. And I like that one because it shows we talked about triggers and it seems like a lot of them are stress, stress, some estrogen. And this is a nice marker to show patients oxidative stress, gives a fuller picture to see how stress affects them on a cellular level. So we've heard about DNA damage, generational DNA damage, but this is showing you on your body. And I kind of like, I was like, oh yeah, I didn't appreciate that as much as I have recently where I've been reading up on oxidative stress and how to combat it for things. So I thought that was interesting and I forgot to mention that. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, I agree. And also it's probably a good idea to let people know too, like for women who are cycling or menstruating, you could do a cycle mapping, like a cycling hormone panel where you could collect samples throughout your cycle, which is arguably more accurate than just doing a single sample, which most cycling women, they would do it in like the second half, the luteal phase. And again, that's better than nothing. You know, I mean, a lot of doctors use that, but this is kind of cool that you can look at it throughout your whole cycle. It is nice. It is. I did not do that one. (laughs) I couldn't give up coffee and exercise that long. (laughs) So let's talk a little bit about hair mineral analysis testing. So if you want to dive into that and like, what is it and what do you look for when you do that test? So this test can be a little more challenging in the sense of it's an easy at-home test, but then we have to cut our hair and not color it for a month. Some of us have more hair than others. We won't make it. (laughs) So I always suggest to patients, you know, hey, grow out your hair for a month, do the test, bring it to your barber or your hairdresser and let them take a little patch in the back so that you're not having some spouse, family member, friend take too much or too little. That's just my tip of the day. It is actually easier. I make it sound. So this test, and I have found it valuable personally with patients, but this is valuable because it gives us a snapshot of heavy metal exposure, which I love. It's like not perfect because if are heavy metal hidden and toxicity. And part of the reason why that is good is because our body is an extraordinarily efficient machine, even when we're sick. It detoxifies and pulls out all the things we're not supposed to have in our body. And it stores it in our tissues and our hair and our bones. And that's where it deposits them. So this can give us a non-invasive way of seeing how are you absorbing nutrients, you know, do you have any heavy metal exposure, things like mercury and copper and aluminum, along with some trace minerals like zinc, selenium, magnesium, calcium, and others. So it's a nice snapshot. Things like the trace minerals, if you're telling me you're taking vitamins and I'm not seeing them in your hair being deposited, I'm like, hmm, what kind of gut issues are you having? You know, are you not having it? Things like thyroid health, and we can confirm or eliminate copper toxicity, which is definitely a possible trigger. I am sure that Eric has seen this. I haven't personally seen this. I've seen other ones, but I know that copper toxicity is related to like estrogen production and zinc and copper are kind of levers for each other. Speaking of heavy metals, for me, it's had a significant impact on our last, I think it's two challenges ago. They were two patients. One was a a jeweler. And when I looked at her test, I was like, oh my God, this person's got lead poisoning, (laughs) you know? And it was really concerning. We were doing a group call and I actually emailed them separately because it was the highest numbers I think that both of us had ever seen because I 
asked you about it. It turns out she was soldering jewelry without protection. And not only was she infected with it, but her whole family was infected with lead poisoning. So I was like, oh, there you go. There's another thing. And that's just one example. I had somebody worked at a mechanic shop. They owned a mechanic shop and she had some poisoning, toxicity, and ended up remediating her whole shop and her whole group. So that's just two extremes, but it does show up on it. So I did mention copper toxicities, things like that can cause it or, you know, pipes, cookware, industrial stuff, hormone replacement, copper IUDs. That's a whole other subject on female hormone replacement that I'm sure one day and you'll cover vegan diets if you're smoking. So, you know, it's a really nice test to find those things and thyroid and hormonal imbalances and mood and depression and weight gain and everything is all connected to this one simple small amount of hair test. So I didn't know that I liked it as much as I did till we did this talk. Yeah, I like the hair test. Also been doing it for years. And it's not a perfect test. You know, some practitioners will criticize the hair test being that it's not perfect. And I admit it's not perfect. Like you could have heavy metals deeply embedded in the tissues and not showing up. Same thing with urine testing. Some practitioners use urine testing for heavy metals. And same thing. It's not perfect either. Some practitioners use like what's called provoked testing, especially in the urine, where they'll you know do like a baseline urine test and then give like a provocation agent or chelator and to mobilize the metals and then do another urine test. And there's controversy over that as well. But when we see the metals, then we know that there's a problem. When we don't see the metals, yeah, it doesn't completely rule out a problem. And sometimes we'll see where maybe we see a few things high initially, someone does things for detoxification, they'll retest a few months later, and some things that weren't high the first time are now high. And the reason for that is because, again, by detoxifying, a lot of times we'll release metals that were more deeply embedded in the tissues. And so it's not necessarily a bad thing. Ultimately, of course, you want to see everything start decreasing and probably never see zero across the board just because we're always being exposed to heavy metals. But yeah, I like that test. And as far as minerals go, again, it's definitely not perfect with the minerals. Some of them I definitely pay attention to. Others like iron, I usually don't pay as much attention to. Not rely on iron in the hair test, which is why I recommend like a full iron panel through the blood. And if someone has like hard water, it definitely will spike up the calcium levels. So you got to keep that in mind. If someone is using anti-dandruff shampoo, usually it has selenium. So you might see elevated selenium. So again, you need to understand that. Again, there are certain variables that can affect the minerals in that way and cause elevations. And then as Tracy said, if there are other minerals where you see there's a lot of them then that are low, then yeah, you might be suspecting a gut issue. It is a good test. It's inexpensive test, affordable for most people to do not only initially, but the challenge with, you know, with testing in general is that when you find something, not everybody could afford to retest. As a result, not everybody does retest. Like when I did my adrenal saliva test and I mentioned everything was low, a few months later, I did another test because I wanted to see and make sure that what I was doing was helping the adrenals. And you could go by symptoms improving and maybe your thyroid test and see if they're improving. But, you know, I wanted to do another saliva test, but some people want to do another saliva test or another Dutch test or another comprehensive stool panel. And again, I'm not saying everybody has to do an initial test and then do a retest. But in some cases, you would want to consider doing that. With hair, it's usually not a problem just because it is so cost effective. Yep, exactly. Hey, this is Dr. Eric. And if you're looking to do everything you can to save your thyroid gland, in addition to listening to this podcast, there are a few different ways we can help you. First of all, I've written a book on hyperthyroidism called Natural Treatment Solutions for Hyperthyroidism and Graves' Disease, as well as a book called Hashimoto's Triggers, which of course is on Hashimoto's thyroiditis. And you can find both of these on Amazon, as well as other websites where books are sold. Second, you could also join my Graves' Disease and Hashimoto's Healing Community by visiting autoimmunethyroidgroup.com. And finally, if you want to get personal help from me, you could visit the website workwithdrerick.com. 
Just to let you know, I only see a limited number of new patients each month, and I do require anyone interested to complete a brief online application before working with me. And now back to the show. Yeah, so next, maybe your favorite test. I know you mentioned earlier how much you like the stool test. So let's talk about the comprehensive stool panel. In our practice, we use the GI map. There are other really good stool tests like GI effects from Genova Diagnostics is really good, but we've been using the GI map from Diagnostic Solutions. Again, there's other companies as well. I'm mentioning the the name just because she's going to go over certain markers that might just apply to GI map. And actually, I'll let you talk about the GI map and what you look for, and then I'll fill in the gaps if there's anything you don't make. There will be gaps. (laughs) So a comprehensive stool panel, again, exactly what it sounds like. Sometimes I tell people my tip of the day is I learned from my youngest who is, uh, who said she just spreads out something on the floor when she does it. Cause you know, when you come to my house, I'm a nutritionist and I do functional diagnostic testing. So instead of a mint on your pillow, there might be some testing on your pillow. And instead of that, like if you're a family member at home, testing and experimentation is a real thing in my house. I've trained on the GI map. I've trained on the Genova, the Cyrex, Nordic. What most people will be able to recognize about it would be it's a DNA-based, the one that we use, quantitative PCR testing. You're most familiar with it by hearing the cologuard, the colorectal, instead of getting your colonoscopy if you don't have a risk. I lovingly call it poop in a box. That's probably the most familiar that people are with it is the alternative colon cancer test, the little camera thing. So quantitative PCR just means instead of doing a long DNA testing and a long DNA test chain, it's a faster test that extrapolates more information, which we love because until recently in gut health, we could only see what was the aerobic, you know, the oxygen breathing bacteria that survived when you poop it out. With this test, it was a game changer in gut health in that you can now get the DNA from the anaerobic, the non-oxygen breathing ones that aren't committing suicide the minute they get out of your out of your body. And we that has opened up the whole field of the microbiome. I tell people I've been interested in poop for far longer than it's been exciting. But as we know in recent studies, is we're seeking deficiencies in kids in the spectrum. We see deficiencies in people with colitis and SIBO and SIFO and thyroid health. We see those deficiencies, all immune and inflammatory diseases. We're seeing them because everybody's inflamed. So I obviously have a lot to say about, about this test. I like the ranges in the tests that we use. Instead of just a positive or a negative, we're getting an entire range of numbers. So I could see your secretary IGA, both you're getting it in your Dutch. Uh, is it the Dutch? No, it's um, a live attack. ASI. You get it in the ASI and you get it in this test. So what's interesting is it's a tremendous correlation for us between the two is that like, hey, saliva in my upper tract is good or in my lower tract and we can correlate. So the tying in of the tests help. So I love to look at, you know, all the markers. I probably first became familiar with it with, you know, my testing here. I like to look at the H. pylori portion of it, which lets us know if it's too high, too low. It's the most comprehensive. It gives a range. It gives virulent factors. It lets us know, like, is it antibacterial resistant? Is it not? Again, the SIG IgA that we mentioned, there's parasite markers, which I've actually seen, which was interesting. I don't see them very often, but we had a patient who had claimed never to have gone out of the country but was a florist and actually picked up a parasite from her floral deliveries from overseas that we had to treat. It's really fascinating. I can also tell what you're eating by what your poop tells me. And so if you're telling me you're being good and you're not, I can see in your opportunistic trigger markers. I could see in your, if you do the zonulin portion and your cow protein. So it's a nice snapshot if you can do. I mean, there's definitely other tests that will tell us more from a thyroid perspective, but I just happen to like it from an overall health perspective on it. And I can say that I, again, I probably do it too much in my household, but 
we all had H. pylori. And an interesting factoid about the H. pylori was how you react. And this is probably with most things is the highest marker individual in my household did not have any symptoms. The lowest marker individual in my household already had some gastric markers from like GERD. They were already having some erosion in their stomach from possible ulcerations. And they were all, they too have thyroid issues. And this helped us treat it. So your symptoms and how you're feeling are going to base on what your markers are and let me know how your snapshot is. I don't know if I answered all the interesting things about it, but clearly I like a nice GI map. Yeah, you covered most of the highlights. As you said, it's a quantitative PCR. So it's not just, you know, like, for example, you mentioned H. pylori. If you go to just a regular lab, it's just going to say, are you positive? Are you negative? Here, I'll actually put a number on it, unless if it's below detectable limits, and it'll be less than DL. But otherwise, I'll actually put a number. So like if someone is elevated, and, you know, so clearly positive, and then they follow either a natural protocol or if they take antibiotics, and then let's say they test after that protocol, and if H. pylori still is high, which would be a bummer, but it does happen, you know, you could see, well, did it get lower at least? Whereas if you went to a regular lab, you would just see it still positive maybe. And another advantage is being that it's PCR, it does seem to be more sensitive than regular labs. So some labs won't pick it up, whether it's a stool antigen or urea breath test, where this will pick it up. So again, yeah, I like this test. It also gives what's called virulence factors, which I'd say most of the time are negative. But the other day I had someone who had two positive virulence factors. And what this means, they're just increased susceptibility to developing. It depends on the virulence factor, but some of them are like developing ulcers, which you know correlated with sometimes with H. pylori, some gastric carcinoma, which of course is not good. But again, it doesn't mean if you have positive virulence factors, you're going to develop ulcers or gastric carcinoma is just an increased susceptibility. So yeah, I like the H. pylori part on this test with some other tests like Genova's GI effects. You have to add on the H. pylori so it doesn't come with H. pylori. And then I, I'm pretty sure it's just like the stool antigen. It's just like positive or negative through that test. So you mentioned parasites, which I will say Genova does have a little bit more within the parasite department on their test. They give a little bit more information with the parasites. But the thing is with parasites, it's definitely not perfect. I mean, there's no perfect test out there with really any of the tests we discussed, but it does get tricky because if someone is negative for parasites, it doesn't always rule out parasites. And that's why there are some practitioners, including some that I've interviewed, who don't do stool testing for parasites. They'll just treat for parasites. And there's definitely controversy over that. But obviously, if you see a parasite, someone tests positive for like blastocystis hominis, then it's at least nice that you know that you have it. And then again, you could choose to retest if you want to retest. Tracy mentioned some other markers like calprotectin, which is an inflammatory marker, especially if someone has ulcerative colitis, you know, it's type of inflammatory bowel disease. We'll a lot of times see that elevated pancreatic elastase is another marker that we see on this test. And that, those markers, calprotectin, pancreatic elastase, we see those on usually other comprehensive stool panels. Again, we probably should differentiate. Maybe I'll have you do this like difference between comprehensive and like going to a regular lab. Right. But before you do that, you mentioned zonulin, which is a leaky gut marker. Yes. If you test for zonulin and if it's elevated, then it typically confirms that you have that increase in intestinal permeability, which is the medical term for a leaky gut. The thing is, I usually don't recommend that because it is an add-on test. And again, I just see false negatives a lot with that. So it's not a perfect marker. If someone wants to absolutely do it, that's fine. But I just assume that most of the people we're working with have a leaky gut. I used to do a lot of leaky gut testing using Cyrex Labs, they're array number two, and there's other tests like lactulose mannitol tests. But yeah, just myself and a lot of practitioners I know, they just assume people have a leaky gut. Again, there's so many different tests that you kind of have to prioritize. Some people want to do everything, but most people have a budget. Yeah, and the flaws with the Leaky gut testing, it doesn't tell you what's causing the leaky gut. But obviously, if you're doing zonulin as part of the GI map, the GI map portion of it, the rest of it can tell you 
what might be causing that leaky gut. And again, what potential triggers like H. pylori could be a trigger for Graves and Hashimoto's. Parasites as well could be a potential trigger. You could feel free to expand on anything I just mentioned, but do you want to briefly mention like what's the difference if someone just wants to get a stool panel like a regular lab, like a lab core or quest diagnostics or anywhere else? What's the difference between this and the test we're discussing? First, I'll say about the leaky gut. We assume that everybody has one because they have an inflammatory disease. And if you're inflamed, your entire body is inflamed from your blood vessels to your heart to everything. So as I always tell our patients, like if you have an inflammatory disease, you have an immune disease, we're a part of why we're assuming it. And, you know, you may agree or disagree on that is that we're treating you with inflammation. It's also with the food testing, as I mentioned, like you're irritated. So everything is going to irritate you. It's like being locked in a closet with somebody who irritates you particularly well, and you're not getting out. They may not make it out. But part of it is just that you're in a heightened state of inflammation. So we're treating it as thus. And then there's another marker that I've recently started looking more at the methyl bacterial marker that we see sometimes elevated in people with SIBO, because even though you can't get into your small intestine, either way, when people have a really bad, I've noticed that we've started to see that more when it's coming down into the marker. I don't know how you feel about that because I didn't ask you how you felt about that, but I've noticed we've seen more of it. And those people tend to test when they do do SIBO tests, they're testing on SIBO. So I threw you under the bus there. Sorry about that. With the methylization markers that we're seeing in the large intestine, I tend to think of people having more SIBO with Graves and thyroid issues because they're off because of our sad diet. But I'll talk about the comprehensive stool panel. I digress. <laughs> If you go to LabCorp and you go to the stool panel, is just collecting and they're testing small amount of markers, you know, what they're seeing, what they're picking up. They're not doing the full DNA. They're not running it. They're not doing the PCR tests. You're just like, it's basically like, what are they seeing here? Are they not seeing or not seeing parasites? They don't have the three different, I know with the GI map. They do both the DNA, then on parasites, they do a visual scan on most of them. So it's just less comprehensive. It's testing less things. It's looking at less markers. It's not running the full DNA on every, on all of them. And I'll be honest, I think part of it is that the companies that specialize in this, well, they have larger data sets because they have a larger amount of people coming in. So they have more of a background and more of training on what they're doing versus a lab core or something. Not that I'm not saying that lab core isn't good. It is good. It's just not giving you the full amount for it, for what you're getting. So it's just limited. And I think if you're going to pay for a test, you might as well get the whole test. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree with what you said. I mean, there's a time and place for basic stool panel if someone is having diarrhea, for example, especially if it's covered by insurance, you go to your, let's say your primary care doctor and get that test because that's what it's testing for. It's testing for Mm -hmm. like, if you look at a GI map report, really there's like four main pages to the GI map. And that's looking, the basic stool panels, looking what's on page one of the GI map, which are parasites, bacteria, and viruses that cause gastroenteritis and commonly diarrhea. So again, if you're having like chronic diarrhea, experiencing for a number of days, then it's not a bad idea to go and get that test. Arguably, maybe even better idea than to get a GI map because the GI map, it will take some time to get the report back. So you might want to go for that basic test. But as far as like looking for triggers and parasites, it's definitely flawed with that. It's going to, again, look at maybe a few parasites that relate to diarrhea. But if you're like relying on that to look at parasites, you're going to be missing out. And same thing with, again, I mentioned even with GI map or Genova Diagnostics, other conference stool panels. Also, those are not perfect for parasites, but arguably the one that you get through like a regular lab is going to be, you know, even just a bare basics, as Tracy mentioned. And I want to expand, you mentioned SIBO, as far as small intestinal bacteria overgrowth, of course, the comprehensive stool panel, it's looking at the large intestine. Now, yeah, there are like markers 
some of the opportunistic bacteria that if they're high, it might give like a hint that maybe like someone might have SIBO. But like if I'm highly suspecting SIBO, typically I would recommend, as you know, the breath test, the SIBO, the SIBO breath test, and that's specific for the small intestine and looking at the methane and the hydrogen. And now there's a lab, I think there's just one lab that looks at like hydrogen sulfide as well. But the good point as far as that you could maybe get an idea of if someone has SIBO, but again, it's just, it's... Right, it's not perfect, but sometimes if it's really raging, (laughs) the patient knows, but there's a few markers that we see down there that occasionally tip us off. So it's just a little added bonus there. Yeah. No, thanks for mentioning that. And so organic acids testing. So let's talk a little bit about that. And there's a few companies that do that. We use more commonly Great Plains Laboratory, but Genova also has one called the Organics. That's pretty good as well. And then the Dutch also has like an ode edition too. Exactly. We mentioned, yeah, it has like a brief, some organic acid markers on a Dutch too. So yeah, let's talk about the one again. Let's get into the Great Plains. That's the one that we mainly do in the practice. Okay, sure. This is another urine test, so it's easy. You know, again, you'll probably want to also be a little slightly dehydrated because we want to concentrate the urine so that we can catch it. It does 74 markers. It's at home. I can keep saying about some of the tests, it's an easier test because you're at home or at work and you could do the collection, collecting. So it does 74 markers from organic acids and they are what your body produces and metabolizes when you're eating food and then discard it. And by measuring the amounts of them, we could see if there's pathway clearing, your kidney function, too much, too little, cellular metabolism, you know, some gut microbiomes are in it. Now, the limitation is that it's showing us what you've eaten or what you've done within a 12 to 48 hour time period. You know, when we're all going to the doctor, we're going to be really good before our blood work and everything like that. So my tip to patients is I really want you to eat what you normally eat. Do not try to game the test. Don't don't try to clean up your diet beforehand because the purpose of this is for us to see what you're doing all the time, not on your best behavior, because then we can really help you and we can really find your triggers and some other things going on by behaving in a normal manner. So that's a good thing to keep in mind. You know, if you're digging, don't do it around the holidays when you're eating the cookies and everything, maybe just do it around during your normal diet. So it is important what you eat beforehand and I want you to eat what you normally eat. One of the best things that we do like about this test is yeast overgrowth is seen in this test and it shows some of that. So it's a good highlight on that versus seeing it not necessarily in the GI map or something else like that. It shows vitamin deficiencies on a neurotransmitter level, mold, fungus exposure to a certain extent. Like other tests, like the coffee and the avocados for one test, you're going to avoid certain foods for this one. So you'll want to look up that list. So even if it's in your normal diet. And like I said, it's a quick and easy snapshot of your cellular health, you know, high oxalates are good to know. Some patients are impacted on it. I know that, that Eric, you had a high oxalate marker when you first were testing and you did some remediation. It also indicates your detoxification, you know, what your body's doing and your mitochondrial marker. So this is another good snapshot of your health, but it's, again, it's limited. It's the 12 to 48 hours of that. So there you go. A trigger, again, I mentioned yeast. Part of it is mitochondrial dysfunction we may see there on some triggers. So every test has a little bit of a piece to the puzzle for what your triggers may be. Yeah, organic acid test, again, a really good test. Tracy mentioned yeast, yeast overgrowth. And yeah, stool tests look for yeast. It just doesn't show up a lot of times. If it shows up on the stool test and you probably have a real bad case of yeast overgrowth, So I do prefer the organic acids test if we're going to look for candida overgrowth or other types of yeast. It's not just candida. And then she mentioned mold markers. And so it could give an idea if someone has, you know, like aspergillus. It's not 
a comprehensive mold test. Actually, Great Plains has their mycotox test, which yes. is more comprehensive if someone wants to look into mold. There's also real-time labs that, and a few other labs that look into mold tests. And the two of the more common ones are Great Plains labs and real-time laboratories. And yeah, Tracy mentioned looks at some mitochondrial markers, you know, which could be a factor, not just with autoimmunity, but yeah, like other, really anybody could have mitochondrial issues. And she mentioned yeast potentially being a trigger, or even if it's not a direct trigger, affecting that permeability of the gut. And mold also could be a trigger, which we mentioned. And, you know, it looks at some of the neurotransmitter markers. She mentioned oxalates. And yeah, so when I did this test a couple of times, the first time, it didn't look too bad. I did have a little bit of yeast overgrowth as well, a little bit of candida, but then I did have the high oxalates. And at the time, I was adding spinach regularly to my smoothies. And then so I cut out, that's the main change I made was cutting out the spinach. I was eating other sources of oxalates, but I can't say I really made dramatic changes in the other areas. But when I retested, the oxalates were normal. So it was really, in my case, the spinach that was the main culprit, but there could be other higher oxalate foods like Swiss chard and sweet potatoes and even nuts and dark chocolate. Again, it's going to be really difficult to completely eliminate the oxalate. So we don't recommend trying to do that. But the spinach is probably the highest source of oxalates. And even if you cook the spinach, it doesn't have much of an impact. And also, she mentioned some um, nutrient indicators. So looks at some of the B vitamins, looks at CoQ10, and looks at NAC, N-acetylcysteine, and then some indicators of detoxification as well. And so, yeah, I mean, really, to me, this is, I mean, it could find triggers, but also it's a good overall test, just looking at different areas, like whereas some of the tests we spoke about so far, you know, especially like saliva testing, looking at focusing more on adrenals and Dutch adrenals and sex hormones, stool test, of course, looking at the gut, here, this is looking at like different areas. So it's more of a broad test. I mean, this would actually be a really nice screen for going to like through a physical. I mean, it probably will never happen, but you go to a physical and they, of course, just usually do like a CBC metabolic panel, lipid panel. And, you know, that's pretty much it. I mean, they might do a vitamin D, but this actually would be a real neat test to do as part of a physical and just to see like one's overall picture, their yeast overgrowth looks at clostridia. We didn't mention clostridia, but that could also be a factor. The oxalates, the mitochondria, the neurotransmitters, the nutrients, indicators of detoxification. So again, it's, you know, really neat test. Like the Dutch test, also a urine test, a pretty easy to collect. Can't say enough good things about this test. And Genova's test is pretty good too. At least as of now, I don't think they test for oxalates. I think the Great Plains no. Lab is the only one I know of that tests for oxalates. And then same with clostridia. Clostridia, I mentioned clostridia, which stool tests will look at clostridia, but they don't differentiate between potentially harmful strains of clostridia and commensal, whereas the organic acid test from Great Plains is looking at more of the problematic clostridia. So if you're high yes. in the clostridia, you definitely want to address that. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, for the most part, we cover what I wanted to. I guess the one thing that I'll briefly mention, you know, because you mentioned the mediator release testing, the food sensitivity testing. And, you know, I actually have another interview. I've spoken about it in the past with some practitioners. And then there's another a follow-up interview with Elizabeth Yarnell, who I interviewed previously, and she has a new book coming out. So she's actually going to talk more about you know the MRT. But the media release testing, I do like it. I need to probably do more of it. I've just had, I can't say opposed to food sensitivity testing, but you know, in the past, you know, I was more familiar with the IgG testing and just didn't find that to be too reliable. Like Tracy said, if someone has a leaky gut, a lot of times you'll get a lot of foods being positive, which is related to the leaky gut. And then it's a little bit of a challenge because again, a lot of those foods may be healthy foods and foods that are allowed on an AIP or paleo diet. And so, yeah, just again, I can't say I never did IgG testing and I've done it in the past, but it usually wasn't the first thing I would recommend. Usually if someone wasn't progressing, then I would like go to the food sensitivity testing and initially just rely on the elimination diet. But I've heard so many good things about MRT. And again, I've dabbled with it, had some patients do it, but just not nearly enough. 
after interviewing Reed Davis and Elizabeth Yarnell and a few others, which is something that also could be very valuable. It's just that everything does add up. And so you need to just prioritize and say, well, this is the test. And also, you know, I've had success without the MRT over the years, but again, obviously always looking to get even better outcomes that I do now and, you know, potentially get people better even quicker. So yeah, that's definitely something else to consider. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I dislike the IgG test because I just found that when you're in a state, you came back with numerous things that weren't allergies, that were just not, that were just sensitivities and other things. And I had to do the MRT test for taking my course. And I don't have food allergies for sensitivities. I'm sort of like the goat of the family. And, you know, a couple of my kids are allergic to different things and have severe, you know, EpiPen type of allergies to them. And I found that that was the most accurate test of them because it didn't come back giving me a list of things that the other tests came back listing. And I'm not downing it for other people. It's been a game changer, but it was interesting for me to do it because I already knew that I wasn't sensitive. I already spend a lot of time working on my health because it's my job. But I was pleased to see that it did not come back with a lot of false positives and a lot of false things that like, oh my God, I can't eat anything. I'm already doing an AIP diet. So I appreciated that about the test and it sort of turned my view of it. My youngest is allergic to pecans and it actually picked it up on one test and then as an experiment, because I do love to experiment, I'm like, oh, let's do the IgG test. And that didn't pick it up. <laughs> you know, and it's an EpiPen sort of situation. So it was interesting to see it. So I guess we'll be doing more in the future when we need to, because we don't need to do them so often. Yeah, well, if I will say if it's a true allergy, like if you had a pecan allergy, the IgG wouldn't pick it up because usually that's like an IgE mediated response. Yeah. So looking for something different, but yeah, I mean the IgG, again, some labs are better than others, but still I do like the MRT better. And again, I like to say we're in an inflamed state. So when you get those sensitivities, sometimes as I think in Reed's interview, who's he's coming after me, he mentioned that he gets an updated list because when we're in an inflamed immune state, sometimes things change because our bodies change. So it may be that you're more sensitive or you're more reactive. I tell people as they get healthier and as they eliminate things all the time, what's fabulous about it is at one point you're in a crowded room because you know our whole diet, our sad diet before we change it is just a crowded room of unhealthy things and environmental toxins. And once you clear out that little voice that used to bother you, oh, you know, your milk or whatever it is that used to never bothered you before is now being able to be heard. So that's a beauty of, I guess, my plug for eating healthy and getting, you know, healthier is that those quiet voices that we can't hear that our body's telling us because we're so, so unhealthy and so living in such a toxic environment, we can now hear. So it's a good thing. Yeah, I agree. And yeah. Anything else? Any last words before we wrap this up, Tracy? You did great. Again, I think we both went into great detail with the test, but yeah. I just want to make sure there's nothing else that you wanted to add. No, I think it's good. I look forward to seeing new patients and reading their tests and doing new programs and just continuing. I love what I do. So I always joke that I'm be a skeleton here in this chair by the time I'm done <laughs> because I just love it. So I'm clearly, you know, our whole offices, we, we love what we do. So, you know, I look forward to the future. Yeah, which of course is important. You know, you want to work with someone who enjoys doing what they're doing. And yeah, Tracy definitely is very passionate about what she does. I think I was emailing you on my vacation for my anniversary on something I was reading <laughs> about uh, an update. So yeah, I, I do love what I do. Yeah. So every time I do an interview, I usually share the website of the person I'm interviewing. But of course, in this case, the website is naturalendocrinesolutions.com. And Tracy's also active in my Graves Disease and Hashimoto's Natural Solutions Support Group on Facebook. So you definitely could check that out. I don't know if you're on Instagram, if you have you know an Instagram account that you want people I to follow you. Okay. Oh, okay. I yeah. thought it was the only one that wasn't on Instagram. So. No, it's the two of us. I could barely keep up with the Facebook group. But, you know, join the group and join the programs and do all the stuff that we're doing. Mm-hmm. So that's it's a fabulous group of, of 
individuals who contribute research and do stuff. So that's a nice resource for everybody along with the podcast. Again, thank you so much for this interview, Tracy. It was a pleasure chatting with you. And, you know, I'm sure the listeners learned a lot about testing and the different triggers that go along with the test. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Save My Thyroid podcast. If you haven't done so already, make sure you hit subscribe to stay up to date on the latest thyroid health-related topics. And to get your free thyroid and immune health restoration action points checklist, visit SaveMyThyroidChecklist.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. That was an awesome interview with Tracy, and I really didn't expect the interview to go as long as it did. But there were a lot of tests to cover, and even that being said, there was things that we didn't cover, but I think we covered a lot. And one thing that I wanted to talk about is how common false negative and false positive test results are, and it really depends on what you're testing for. So, I mean, any test can have a false negative result or a false positive result. I've seen it with blood testing. I've seen it with saliva testing. A lot of it comes down to the people working behind the scenes. And I learned this from someone who was working, I think, or actually was someone who worked in the past for one of the labs. I'm pretty sure it was Genova Diagnostics. And, you know, they were just saying that false Positives and negatives can happen if mistakes happen behind the scenes, the people that are working, running the test. So there is that possibility. And with certain tests, it's not just about the people behind the scenes. Like, for example, I've also mentioned, as well as some guest experts have mentioned, that there are flaws with parasite testing in the stool. And even with comprehensive stool testing and even with the GI map, which is a DNA-based test, it's still not perfect. You still might miss parasites. And and this doesn't always relate to the people working behind the scenes. It's not a perfect test. And so you could have false negative results. And again, that's why some practitioners will treat everybody for parasites. And maybe one day I'll get there. I'm not completely opposed to doing that. Like if I do a comprehensive stool test and if the person's negative, for parasites. I won't necessarily put the person on parasite protocol, but I won't be opposed to it. It's not like I will completely rule out parasites. I'll look at the results and for the time being, assume there's no parasites. But if the person's not getting better, then perhaps they might need to follow a parasite protocol. So as you know, different practitioners will take a different approach. I wouldn't say it's wrong for certain practitioners to have all their patients follow a anti-parasitic protocol even without testing, but it's just something that I currently don't do. But we do need to be aware that there are the possibility of false negative results. You know, I mentioned zonulin, which also relates to the stool test, an add-on for some stool tests, including the GI map. And another test I don't really like to do. So the parasite test, I shouldn't say I don't like to do that. That's part of the GI map. So I definitely do that. We'll talk about food sensitivity testing. That's one thing, at least the IgG that I haven't been a huge fan of. But with zonulin, again, I've seen a number of zonulin markers over the years. And I'm pretty sure a good number of them that were negative weren't really negative. And, you know, if it's positive, that's great. The person sees that it's positive. And then it's more convincing to do things to help heal the gut, I guess. I used to do, as I mentioned, I used to do a lot of leaky gut testing using Cyrex labs. And, you know, it's nice to get that baseline test, but everything adds up. And that's why when it comes to testing, it ultimately is up to the person. If someone really wants to do a leaky gut test, that's fine, including adding zonulin to comprehensive stool tests. But It's just something I don't recommend because, again, I just assume the person has a leaky gut. And then speaking of a leaky gut, a leaky gut can potentially lead to a lot of food sensitivities, a lot of positives on a food sensitivity test, especially the IgG food sensitivity test. Again, I'm not completely opposed to IgG food sensitivity test. I think there is some validity and I have done it on some patients. Usually it's not the first test I'll recommend. Usually it's if someone wants to do it initially, I won't argue with them, but usually I have people follow an elimination diet and then reintroduce foods. And if they're not progressing, then again, down the road, if if they're hitting a roadblock 
and we're not sure we've done, maybe we've done other tests and we don't have answers. That's when I would look more into food sensitivity testing. And like I said, I have done IgG food sensitivity testing. And more recently, I started doing MRT mediated release testing. Currently, as a recording this, I can't say I do it on a lot of patients. That may change after interviewing Reed Davis recently and Elizabeth Yarnell, an interview last year, and there'll be an interview in the near future. I already interviewed her, but it hasn't been on the podcast yet. And then a few other practitioners mentioned MRT. That is something I anticipate doing more of in the future. And then briefly, SIBO and mold testing we discussed And so, as I said, mold testing, organic acids tests, especially the one from Great Plains Lab, does have a few markers that relate to mold. And if it's positive, then you definitely want to pay attention to those markers and maybe dig a little bit deeper. However, if it's negative, it doesn't completely rule out a mold problem. So in some cases, a person might need to do a mycotox test, like the Great Plains Lab or real-time labs or There's one or two other labs that test for mycotoxins, and that's a urinary test. And then SIBO. So Tracy was mentioning how there are some markers on the GI map that relate to opportunistic bacteria. Obviously, I look at the markers because I'm if when I do a GI map, but I wouldn't rely on that. Now, if someone is having a lot of gas and bloating, especially eating certain foods, especially high FODMAP foods, which is very common with SIBO. Even in the absence of certain elevated opportunistic bacteria, I might suspect SIBO just based on the symptoms. And again, usually I would want to test, but getting back to the false negatives, false positive, you could have a false negative with the SIBO test too. So if someone runs a SIBO test and if it's negative, it's not like we could 100% rule out SIBO. Let's say someone does a comprehensive stool panel and a SIBO test, and they do that because they're having a lot of gastrointestinal symptoms and they've done a lot with diet, so they're pretty sure it's not food-related. Everything comes back looking good. H. pylori is negative, no parasites, you know, SIBO test is negative. Again, it is possible that the SIBO test is a false negative or the parasites is a false negative. So sometimes you do need to treat regardless of what the testing shows, but I do like to test and see if we could find the problem. And then I'm not going to spend a lot of time on colonoscopies, but Tracy mentioned the Cologuard. I'm not a huge fan of colonoscopies. And if you are listening to this and you have had one or more colonoscopies, that's fine. You probably don't love getting colonoscopies, but some people don't mind. Like my younger sister doesn't mind getting colonoscopies. At least I don't think she does. Like I'm pretty sure she's had a few of them. You know, to her, it's not as big of a deal. But with me, I am in my 50s now, and I have never had a colonoscopy, and I'm hoping I will never get one in the future. The prep isn't fun. Again, I haven't done it personally, but my wife actually did a colonoscopy. She did one time, I believe. So she did the prep, and I've had patients do the prep. The main thing is going under the anesthesia, and there might be some doctors who won't put the person on anesthesia, at least I, I did some research. And so just in case if I needed a colonoscopy, which again, I don't think I need one, but again, you, you just never know. And so the Cologuard is something I'll also be considering and probably should do sooner than later. Just there's no family history of colon cancer in my family, but that doesn't mean that I can't get colon cancer. So I'm not taking it lightly. I just, everything's risk versus benefits. And I've heard some you know, some nightmare stories about colonoscopies as well. So it's not just about the prep and, you know, going under anesthesia. I mean, those are two big things, but there's other potential problems. But obviously there's some benefits too that it could find polyps and colon cancer and and other things. That's all I want to expand on here. Again, thanks for listening to the episode. And I hope you learned a lot from myself as well as Tracy. Uh, look forward to catching you in the next episode. I want to let you know about a product called Hepatomune Supreme, which is a unique supplement that has a rare combination of N-acetylcysteine, also known as NAC, milk thistle, and schisandra to support the liver. And it also has a few mushrooms that can help support the immune system, including cordyceps, which has both immune modulating and adaptogenic properties and is great for those with Graves' disease and Hashimoto's. To learn more about Hepatomune Supreme, visit SaveMyThyroid.com forward slash liver support.